Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Pensions Experts fortnightly podcast. As the country begins to move out of lockdown, our ambition is to make it to the end of this program without contracting even the need to talk about coronavirus. Uh, so to that end, our topics this week will be firstly, innovation. The regulator is set to issue guidance on so-called capital-backed endgame deals. We'll ask what space exists for bespoke arrangements to be reached and whether we are likely to see more of them, after which we suffer insolvency, not directly, for we are all fortunate enough to remain in gainful employment. But by looking at new insolvency laws introduced by Parliament and at what they mean for defined benefit schemes, finally, allegations of naughty behaviour have been levelled against a number of LGPS authorities whose investments in arms manufacturers and other supposedly nefarious assets are deemed by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and others to be unethical. My name is Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert. We are delighted to be joined today by perhaps the pensions expert, Malcolm McLean, currently an independent pensions consultant, uh, who my editor hopes has not forgotten more about this subject than I will ever know. And also by the inestimable Penny Koger, partner at Irwin Mitchell, uh, whose dual purpose today is to explain the law to us whilst making sure we do not fall foul of it. We begin with innovative arrangements then. We reported last week on a pension scheme reaching a capital-backed endgame deal which uses third-party investors to back the cost of a buyout. Uh, it was hard to actually discover very much by way of specifics about this deal because the press release concerned an awful lot of things which it turned out were the subject of confidentiality agreements. But I thought, Penny, if I can begin with you, um, we maybe take a, a broad look at this. I gather the regulator was aware of the deal. Um, it was decided in this case that the deal didn't require clearance. The regulator has said they will issue guidance and groups like Clara and the Pension Superfund are still awaiting their guidance. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of what the guidance is at the moment surrounding these unusual arrangements. Do such groups like the Pension Superfund need to wait for extra guidance or does the law allow them to proceed regardless? The difference between this capital back journey that was announced last week and the, the super funds is that we're told that this is an investment decision that's been made by the trustees. So there was no need for regulator clearance. We're told that the assets were invested to target the cost of a buyout at an agreed date with suitable returns on the capital with a hedge out of inflation and interest rates. Of course, with current concern about volatility with COVID and the prospect of negative inflation, it's difficult to know quite how solid these assumptions are. And then we're told that the scheme draws cash from the structure to pay the benefits until it reaches buyout. Um, it has been done through Portune Capital which is not subject to any capital adequacy requirements or solvency two requirements, unlike the super funds that we're more used to. So that means that as regards Portune Capital, we don't know whether it's going to be there in five to eight years time, how solid it is, what's in it for them. Whereas there's been a much more um, public discussion about the Claras and the other super fund arrangements. We broadly know what's in it for them. And we have some idea of how any surplus might be used on winding up. And we don't know what this particular scheme rules might say about sharing surplus with its members. I wonder what your opinion is on, on the, this deal or the, the regulatory guidance issue more broadly, Malcolm. Well, this is part of the thing that we've been talking about now for, for some time, the whole question of an end game strategy for DB private sector schemes. And we've seen in the past uh, the the most obvious way of, uh, of uh, buying out a scheme uh, the, through the insurance arrangement, such as a bulk annuity deal. Uh, but there has been, I think, a growing interest in the use of alternative consolidation mechanisms. That would be either merging schemes or transferring liabilities to a third party. 
I can understand the regulator being a little bit concerned about this new type of business model, which uh, has got certain possible downsides to it. And that's something the regulator will want to satisfy itself of, because at the end of the day, it's the consumer, it's the members that could lose out uh, as a result of this. And I don't think anybody wants that to happen. As regards consolidation, um, I'm a little bit confused about this because my understanding initially was the government were quite keen on consolidation, but yet they, they, they have left it out of the um, of the pension schemes bill, which is currently stuck somewhere in, in Parliament because of the uh, uh, pandemic um, priorities. And uh, it was a little bit of a surprise that they, they left it out of that. So we don't really know where we're going there. There's nothing to stop consolidation taking place at the moment, as I understand it. Uh, but there, I think we all think there needs to be some sort of regulatory parameters laid down for this to work properly, hence the need for um, something to be produced in legislation. But it's not going to happen immediately, and uh, it may be that we're stuck on this for, for some time. In the absence of um, government legislation, regulation or additional guidance from um, the regulator, how much space do schemes and companies involved in dealing with them have to almost pursue their own agenda. I suppose that question is really about what allowance is there for innovation? Because obviously the pension super fund has been waiting for guidance for a while. Then out of the blue, this capital back venture just emerges again, apparently without guidance regarding it. So is it just the case that these consolidators are, are waiting just to be sure, but they could in theory act if they wanted to. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a, a good way of putting it. While, while the consolidators don't actually require a change of the law in order to separate schemes from their sponsors, it's thought that in most cases, many will be reluctant to proceed without the ability to point to specific regulatory standards, providing assurance that the risk to members has been ad adequately mitigated. So I think uh, we're, we're all thinking in terms of the members here. Uh, as to what is the best way to proceed. And I think that's a good thing, actually. So I, I, I imagine that most of the consolidators will, for the moment, want to hold off on this, but it may, it may well be that some of them will want to fire ahead anyway. And of course, the trustees are concerned. They, If they know that there's going to be regulatory guidance out there that hasn't been issued, they won't necessarily want to push ahead until they've seen that guidance in case... Quite. And it falls foul of it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. It's not just down to the consolidator. Obviously, it's to the trustees themselves who have to, who have a fiduciary role here. They've got a responsibility to make sure that whatever happens is in the best interest of the members, and that will be something that will they will have to ask themselves many questions about before proceeding in the absence of some sort of regulatory framework for. For controlling these things. So I suppose then that, that leads us nicely on moving away from changes we are yet to see in the law to changes which are almost certainly going to happen in the law. Uh, recently, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy introduced the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Bill uh, with potential implications for defined benefit schemes, which, as I understand it, are typically uh, unsecured creditors. Um, as a complete layman to this, I was wondering, Penny, if you could explain to me what it is about uh, this new bill which impacts DB schemes and how what to look out for when studying this. So I think the first thing to point it out is that this bill is going to be fast-tracked through Parliament and they want it to become law by the end of June on the basis that the government, uh, and I think there's all party consensus really, that the bill is basically good for UK PLC. 
from the pensions perspective, we do want joined up legislation with some dovetailing over directors, over their new proposed duties um, to pension schemes as regards the pension schemes bill that's sort of sitting there languishing. Um, and the moral hazard rules, again, which have to interact quite carefully with the new um, insolvency regimes. Um, or what impact this may all have for pension trustees who are often a group or a company's largest creditor, sometimes um, secured, sometimes unsecured, outside of the banks. So, I mean, we were just getting to grips with the legal scope of um, the regulator's moral hazard powers through various court cases. And we're now going to have to view them all from a different prism. Where we are is that this um, bill makes changes two temporary changes and three um, more fundamental changes to the current solvency regime. The first temporary change is to the winding up petition regime, and it basically stops winding up petitions being put in place for the next three months or so. This has a relevance to DB pension schemes because, as we all agree, if the pension trustees are the largest unsecured creditor of, of a, a company, then sometimes those pension trustees are advised to, to issue a winding up petition against their sponsoring employer if the position has re reached um, such a stage that the company doesn't seem able to support the group any longer. So those types of petitions can no longer be put in place by pension trustees. Um, a further change, um, which is a temporary change, but I think just worth mentioning very briefly, is a suspension of liability for wrongful trading. And it means that a director can continue um, running a company, um, even if there is concern that, that the company is technically insolvent. And, and this, I think, is just helpful in terms of keeping um, businesses going. But there is liability there that continues for, for, for misfeasance. So directors still have to be careful if they are going to keep a potentially insolvent company going, that they don't fall foul of their misfeasance duties. And the government has to be careful over this cliff edge position, whereby once that three month or six month temporary period comes to an end, the directors are then straight back in the firing line for um, wrongful trading and direct and, you know, and trustees start pointing the finger and saying, actually, you know, you, you know, you're really wrongfully trading here and we know you are. And, and, and if you don't start taking matters more seriously, we will potentially encourage the book to be thrown to you. So those are the two temporary measures. And then we have three longer term measures. We have a, a fancily named a new gateway moratorium that allows companies to consider and implement rescue options. And under this, there is a moratorium holiday. So there's a payment holiday for all of the debts of the company incurred before the moratorium, except one thing that's included is wages or salary, which you'd expect pension contributions to be included in, in, the, in the detail of it all. And this just gives the, um, the, the company a breathing space, the director's breathing space to helpfully turn that company round. So I think that would be a good thing for pension schemes, pension trustees, because I, you know pension trustees are not meant to be in the business of necessarily um, pushing their sponsoring employer to the edge. But I think the one that's caused the controversy on the pension side of things is something that's called a, a cross-class cram-down. It's, it's, it's a new restructuring procedure to cram down, to force basically a rescue plan across the company's dissenting junior classes of creditors, which could include these pension trustees.
So this is the bit where um, I think lawyers have been concerned that pension trustees may be potentially forced to agree to uh, a restructuring proposal that may not necessarily be in the, in the best interests of that pension scheme. But it's worth noting that, that actually if the pension trustees feel that the, um, the proposal, the compromise is brought back to the court for final approval, so there is an opportunity there for the pension trustees to make a representation if they feel they are worse off and that and the court can only override the dissenting pension trustees say if the court decides that that dissenting class would not be any worse off under the arrangements than what's most likely would happen in the alternative mm. here i mean usually if those pension trustees are unsecured creditors if they get something out of the arrangement they're getting something more than they might otherwise potentially have got under a full insolvency where they may just get a few pence in the pound so there's a potential for those dissent, those um, pension trustees to get more under this arrangement. Finally, then, um, we're moving on from changes definite to changes that at least some people desire. Uh, we reported on May 29th research carried out by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, which showed that 33 local government pension scheme funds have investments totaling more than £2 billion in a variety of ethically dubious companies, including arms manufacturers and companies blacklisted by the United Nations Human Rights Council for alleged activities in Gaza and the West Bank. Additionally, as we reported today, I believe it was, the university's superannuation scheme has announced it's to divest from tobacco and arms manufacturers and some fossil fuel companies. Penny, there's um, quite a clear um, ESG motive when it comes to divesting from fossil fuels. Many of their producers have fared especially badly in this current crisis. But issues like arms, tobacco and questions around involvement in Israel presumably come under what we might call ethical investment, which, as I understand it, is distinct. When it comes to making investment decisions, which is, shall we say, non-financially based, um, what, what's the law currently? I understand that there are the Law Commission's two tests, which, which maybe you could explain for us. This is, is very much a, a hot topic at the moment. We had um, the Supreme Court uh, reaching a decision just on the 29th of April 2020 about how local authority pension schemes, administering authorities, should uh, invest in the, for the LGPS. But what the Supreme Court did do is it... I think it is helpful. It helpfully endorsed the Law Society's report, 2014 report on the fiduciary duties of investment intermediaries. And so it, it's agreed that on ESG matters, non-financial factors may only be taken into account by LGPS administrators if the trustees had good reason to think the scheme members would share the concern and the decision should not involve a risk of significant financial detriment to the fund. And um, and the Supreme Court says, well, this reconciles the differences there were with the old 1985 Cowan and Scargill case about the extent to which trustees can take account of financial factors in investment. I mean, what I would say is I think we're in a different investment world as regards ESG now in 2020 than even 2016, when the government tried to push through its policy on disinvestment for ESG matters. But equally, I think... It's still very difficult, I think, for um, LGPS administrators, trustees and scheme members on DB to know quite how to satisfy those Law Commission guidelines. Because what it says is um, the trustees have to have good reason to think the scheme members would share the concern. And of course, members can have a huge range of views, especially over ESG. It means different things to different people. 
And people have their own ESG interests that they want to prioritize. And some actually don't want to prioritize any ESG interests. They just want maximum return on their investments. And when you think about it, these public sector employees in the LGPS itself are 50, uh, 5.9 million employees and trying to to find some policy that everybody would agree to or even the, the majority would, would agree to is is fundamentally i think quite quite difficult um and then the second um rule that um, the law commission laid down that the supreme court has endorsed is the decision over esg should not involve a risk of significant financial detriment to the fund and and the amount of crystal ball gazing, especially with the pandemic and the volatility that's been introduced there, and now with the US rating, I mean, I think it's, it, it makes it very difficult, I think, for trustees or the LGPS administrator or any investment advisor really to be able to, to judge it in that way. Yeah, there are certainly specifics to be ironed out. But um, Matt Malkin, if I could ask you just in a quite a broad sense, is your impression that, that this newfound focus on the ethics or the morality of pensions investments is something which is almost quite a modern phenomenon? Is our understanding of the, the role of pensions and the morality of their investments um, changing? Is it somewhat keener now than perhaps it was in the past? Well, I think there's been a big change in attitudes to uh, ethical investment uh, across across the world, r- rather than just uh, in, in the context of pension schemes. Uh, at one time, trustees would would take the view that they had to get the best possible deal uh, out of their investment strategy for the members. And that often meant excluding ethical investments altogether. I think we've moved on quite a bit from that now, and it's often seen that ethical investments can over a longer term produced good returns and and satisfy the the moral considerations as well. So I think things are different now than they were, but there's still a problem here as to getting the best deal and uh, investing in in good areas, shall we say, which uh, will will act for the benefit of not only the members, but the the country and, and if not the world as a whole. Yeah, I think an involving area is how I'd probably define it, just based on the little work I've done on it so far. Um, yeah, evolve, evolving areas often evolve uh, in, in a way that you don't expect as well. <laughs> we'll have to see how that works out. Absolutely, watching it very closely. Um, it's a bit um, like bit, bit like the end game we were talking about before. The end games are really long games because in some cases you talk, might be talking about thirty-five years before the end game comes to an end. Um, so they, these are long-term issues, really. That then is all we've got time for. So thank you to our guests, uh, Malcolm and Penny. Thank you to our listeners, whoever you are. We'll be back in two weeks' time, and we hope you'll join us again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. 